Welcome to The Atlantic Interview. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, and today I'm talking with one of the world's leading experts on the seemingly endless wars in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, So naturally, I'd like to begin with Moby Dick, and you'll see there's a reason for this. In the opening chapter of Moby Dick, which is this wonderfully modern uh, interior novel, Ishmael, the protagonist, wonders how God, or Providence, sees his whaling voyage. Doubtless my going on this whaling voyage formed part of the grand program of Providence that was drawn up a long time ago. It came in as a sort of brief interlude and solo between more extensive performances. I take it that this part of the bill must have run something like this. Grand contested election for the presidency of the United States. Whaling voyage by one Ishmael. Bloody battle in Afghanistan. So this is Herman Melville writing roughly 168 years ago and talking about the fact that there is this enduring bloody conflict in Afghanistan. Uh, and, And this passage has always struck me as a rejoinder, in a way, to those who argue that Afghanistan is a solvable problem. So to understand why Americans have been fighting and dying in Afghanistan for 17 years and why the whole region seems unfixable, I needed to talk to Steve Call. Steve became famous on this subject for his book, Ghost Wars, which won the Pulitzer Prize. Steve, welcome to the big broadcast. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Jeff. Steve is also the dean of Columbia Journalism School, uh, which makes him the dean of all journalism. Yes, I appreciate that. Um, And the reason you're here is you have a new book, which is sort of part two. Of yes. Ghost Wars, Ghost Wars it's Reloaded. Sort of intended that way. Yeah. Go- Ghost Wars. This time it's personal. That's what they do in movies. <laughs> yeah, that's what they do in movies when they need to. Uh, the, the the book. This one is called Directorate S: The CIA in America's Secret Wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan. You and I have both spent a lot of time with generals and diplomats who believe that this is a fixable problem. I wonder if you could start big and and talk about delusion. Well, it's really, it was frustrating to, even as a beat reporter, to learn just how unable our government was to confront the contradictions and the delusions in its own policy. Even when really smart people who are well-informed would speak the words, there is no military solution. Well, what what I would tell you is we can't kill our way out of this thing. So there's got to be some sort of political solution tied in. Well, I think there is no military solution to the situation we face in Afghanistan. They hasten to add that there is no military solution to the war. Well, then maybe we should try something other than a military solution. And the part of the problem um, is this momentum that builds up in a war. There's six different wars being fought by six different agencies of government, and it takes enormous willpower to try to force those things together into a single strategy. But the timing of this project coming out coincided with the Vietnam, you know, sort of fall that we had, the Ken Burns documentary series, and then the Post, the movie that's about the Pentagon Papers. And It was really uh, striking how similar the patterns of failure in decision-making at the highest level by people who are, you know, really well-intentioned and well-informed. What are are two or three of those patterns that recur? Well, one is this momentum of fighting wars for honor um, that was really, you know, why presidents um, kept going forward even when they were being advised that there was no progress. Our friends have fought and bled and died alongside us in Afghanistan. And now we must come together to end this war successfully. And so 
to buy time to find a decent interval. And, you know, look, I feel- Nixon and Kissinger spent a lot of time looking for an exit with honor. And even Johnson was, you know, sort of, I inherited this. I'm going to try to see it through because the momentum is there. The sacrifice is there. Our prestige is at stake. That's another theme. And the, the last one I would mention is faith and counterinsurgency. This idea that you can- win an expeditionary war with a massive international land force in the media age, in the age of asymmetric power. Um, it was a delusion in Vietnam, and it was a delusion in Afghanistan. There was, there's a moment, I think right at the beginning of the book, um, in which you, you illustrate a couple of illustrations of this disconnect between agencies. Uh, the Pentagon was about to bomb or fire missiles, hellfire missiles, at uh, a CIA-run airstrip uh, thinking that it was a Taliban-run yes. airstrip. Tell that story. It's a really fascinating story, and it illustrates something larger. So this was the team of CIA officers that went into northern Afghanistan right after September 11th. So they were there from the third week or so of September. And one of them is a guy named Chris Wood, who went on to have a storied career at the CIA, eventually ran the counterterrorism center. He was the sort of the operations guy on the team. And once they got settled in the Panjshir Valley, they decided to start building possibly reviving an old German airstrip that they came across. So Wood, who was in civilian clothes with a big beard and spoke Dari, would go out to this airstrip every day as kind of like the construction supervisor, the foreman. And he had a bunch of guards around him who had guns and were panjiris right. and were Afghan Tall guards. guy, beard, guns, <laughs> yeah, must yeah, be exactly. one guy, right? Yeah, exactly. And so this the Global Response Center back at CIA headquarters was watching this with overhead surveillance and they were about to shoot him uh, with a with a bomb or a drone missile. And one of his colleagues got into the message traffic and said, they fortunately, they called out and said, you know, we're about to hit this target and they, they stopped it. But, you know, there was another example when the later the Obama administration was negotiating with the Taliban and for the first meeting they were going to meet with Mullah Omar's representative and they wanted to fly him to Germany. After 12 years of war, Washington is to enter into direct talks with Afghanistan's Taliban. And the Taliban side said to Doug Lute, who was President Obama's national security advisor for all this, look, we've gone to these meetings before and we've been arrested and sent to Guantanamo. So I want to guarantee that if we're going to have these talks, we're not going to be arrested. And so Obama, you know, relayed his personal guarantee. But Lute decided, I'm not going to tell the CIA about this meeting because somehow down in the bureaucracy, the information that a person on a list is in Germany could trigger, trigger some snatch operation that even the White House couldn't stop. And I thought, this is the president's like number two, basically saying, I'm going to withhold this information from the operational bureaucracy because right. it's so independent that it could do anything, even in Germany. Right? By the way, I want to bring up something that Barack Obama uh, said, uh, actually, in, in, in an interview I did with him uh, six or eight months before the end of his administration, in which he, he, he had a very good line on this point you're making about honor and prestige. He said, one of the worst reasons to go to war is to prove that you're willing to go to war. And, and yet, this is, this, is, this, this is the president who actually went through periods of upgrading uh, or yep. intensifying yep. a war in Afghanistan that I know, and you know Obama enough to know that he's fatalistic right. about conflicts like this. Explain the process that led him to make decisions in Afghanistan that he knew were 
not going to work. Right. Well, it took him two years, I think, to come to a full conviction. And 2010 remember, was the yeah, end of illusion, I think you say in the, in the right, book. That's yeah. right. So he comes in in 2009. He's never had executive experience before. He ran a campaign as the Democratic Party had been running campaigns for years saying Afghanistan's the good war. Throw the Republicans out because they're, they're fighting the wrong war in the wrong way. We're going to go fix what matters. We're going to get after al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda's on the Afghan-Pakistan border, all of which was true. My new strategy will be taking the fight to al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and Pakistan. The Taliban controls parts of Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda has an expanding base in Pakistan that is probably no farther from their old Afghan sanctuary than a train ride from Washington to Philadelphia. There was a sort of political momentum in the party and in the president coming to office. And then basically as soon as he sharpens his pencil on day one, a bunch of generals with four stars come in and say, you got to send more troops in now. And this started this debate with Biden and from a distance, Holbrook and others saying, don't get rolled by the generals, let's go more slowly. And Obama feeling, you know, that he had, that the timeline was what it was, he kind of acquiesced. Uh, then the generals came back for more. And the problem, I think, looking back on those years, so he ended up escalating, as you say, ultimately 150,000 international troops, 100,000 plus Americans there fighting a, you know, a counterinsurgency war in these irrigated marijuana fields, people losing lives and limbs over, you know, districts that were so far away from a strategic end. Now the latest in that critical battle for Kandahar in Afghanistan, the huge city which has been at the heart of Taliban country. We're one month in and we ask By the time you get to that part of the war, you say, how did we get here? But, you know, one of the things that happened in those first two years, if you have a young president who hasn't done this before, he needed better civilian advice than he had. And one of the reasons why he didn't have great civilian advice was that he was alienated almost from the beginning from Richard Holbrooke, who was the main person who was supposed to be his expert on this war. Alienated for personal reasons, just yeah. manners of style. Style and Holbrooke's bearing and the things Holbrooke said around him. And they're very different characters. And I can certainly understand how that developed. But one of the things that Holbrooke would say was, they don't want to hear about Vietnam. I was there, but Obama almost has like an allergic reaction if you raise the comparison between what we're doing with this escalation in Vietnam. And, they sh and, and this was the line that really stuck with me. They shouldn't be afraid of history. Mm. I think what you're suggesting is that Obama saw Johnson as the Democratic president he doesn't want to be. Right. The guy who gets just sucked into the right. mire. And by the end of 2010, he knew enough about the process and about Afghanistan to have to have decided, I'm, I'm done with this war. I've got to play out some commitments I've made. But it's those first two years where I think he's still formulating this view. It's interesting that he didn't want to hear about Vietnam then, because I think the entirety of his second term was about avoiding a Vietnam-like experience in Syria. Maybe he wouldn't articulate it as a Vietnam experience. Is that Does that ring true based on your yeah. study of this? Yeah, definitely. I think he decided also at the end of 2010 to announce that he would be leaving Afghanistan as he announced that he was going into Afghanistan heavy up for a couple of years. I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. After 18 months... Our troops will begin to come home. That decision was, you know, born of his two years of coming to terms with the fact that this was actually not a war he wanted to escalate, that he did not want to go down a path that Johnson had gone Isn't down. Isn't it a terrible uh, tactical mistake to tell your enemy when you're going to leave? I thought so at the time, and, and um, I think a lot of people still do today. 
I'm not sure it would have made much difference if he said, I'm going to stay here for 25 more years. Uh, ISI in Pakistan would probably still have reacted and, well, we're, we're here too, and this is our neighborhood. We're here forever. We're here forever. But there's no question that, that the Pakistanis moved very quickly to a post-American strategy um, because of the firmness of the timetable and the obvious fact, and it didn't take a presidential speech to convince them of this, we were in the Great Recession there was no appetite for the for the war. Let me come back to this Moby Dick point, if I may, and ask the largest question, which is, what would have worked? A smaller footprint, um, an earlier investment in Afghan capacity. You're not a fatalist about Afghanistan's ability to be a functioning country. No, I'm not, because it was a functioning country between 1920 and 1973. And the decimation, the factionalism, the polarization that you see in the country now is inseparable from the fact that the place has been at war since the mid-1970s. And it's been at war because outside countries, starting with the Soviet Union, invaded the place. And the question was, what would have worked? Okay, so worked for what? Al-Qaeda was a serious international menace along the Pakistan-Afghan border during this time. It was carrying out repeated cross-border attacks, almost blew up a bunch of planes over the Atlantic Ocean in 2006. Uh, eight men have gone on trial, accused of plotting to explode homemade liquid bombs on transatlantic passenger planes. The men all deny a charge of conspiracy to murder. They were visible, they were organized, they were ambitious. That was the reason... We went to uh, escalate in Afghanistan. It was the reason Barack Obama endorsed the escalation. And if you look at his remarks, even in the very earliest days before he really had his hands around this thing, he said, the only vital interest we have in this war is al-Qaeda. I will make the fight against al-Qaeda and the Taliban the top priority that it should be. There are other interests, regional stability. Uh, we may There was a kind of a secret annex to one of the early policy documents that said, oh, yes, we have a vital interest in Pakistan's nuclear weapons not falling into the wrong hands, but let's not talk about that in public. So we have two interests, Pakistani stability and al-Qaeda. Neither of those things are in Kandahar. Thousands of American troops are heading to southern Afghanistan, specifically to Kandahar, to bring stability to the country's second largest city. Right. So Al-Qaeda is across the border in Pakistan. Right. And so why are you sending 150,000 troops next door to to address a problem that is across the border? And right, by, the Haqqani network literally coming from Pakistan, killing Americans, going back to hide in Pakistan. Yes. Yeah. So... This contradiction keeps recurring, but nobody wants to confront it. And the contradiction is we're fighting a big, heavy counterinsurgency war in Afghanistan, but the interests we've identified are located in Pakistan. So let's come to Pakistan because it is the core of the, of the problem in many ways, and it's in many ways the core of your book. Uh, what does Pakistan want? Well, so they want stability um, and they want uh, to be left alone by India and they want uh, to make sure that Afghanistan is not an unfriendly country that allows India to destabilize them. Now, when you say- Are what Pakistan's is, interests abnormal or are these the normal interests of a, of a nation state in a contentious neighborhood? Right. So a mix of things. Um, when we say Pakistan, are we talking about the army and the intelligence? We're talking about the people ISI. who run the country. Okay. So- I think let's just talk about the army because they run the country. The civilians might craft a different uh, world, but they're but they don't hold power. So what the army um, wants is to maintain its power, uh, maintain its prestige within the country, maintain its prerogatives, and so part of that involves um, 
publicizing a narrative of insecurity and rivalry with India, threats to the country that justify the army's outsized role in national life. Now, you know, in fairness to them, even at the kind of level of high military control, what what happened after 9-11? So this attack that they had indirectly facilitated by not challenging the Taliban's relationship with al-Qaeda, to be sure, but it wasn't their attack. They weren't on the planes. After that attack, the United States comes barreling into the region. Pakistan decides to cooperate with them uh, because it's either that or be on the wrong side of history. What happens? The U.S. comes in. They overthrow the Taliban. All of al-Qaeda migrates from Afghanistan into Pakistan. And then they settle in the cities. They settle in the tribal areas. and, And in the next seven or eight years, there is actually more terrorism inside Pakistan with Pakistani victims than there is in Afghanistan. Now to Pakistan, where a suicide bomber earlier today attacked a hospital in the city of Quetta. The explosion killed at least 70 people and wounded more than 100. So the American boot comes down in Afghanistan and it scatters everybody underneath that boot. Into Pakistan. Into Pakistan. And they said, we told you this was going to happen. And and you said that... Another advertisement for the light footprint. <laughs> yes. In a kind of way. Yes. Well... Some of that was a function of the light footprint in the fall of 2001, remember, because it was an unconventional war and there was no blocking force at Tora Bora and so al-Qaeda escaped. But in the longer term, um, the Pakistanis feared that the U.S. ambition in Afghanistan, the big, heavy, conventional war that, you know, ended up unfolding into the period 2010-2012, that all that was going to do was to further destabilize uh, their country. Are the Pakistanis completely wrong to fear India? It's irrational. Uh, And, you know, India's own... India does not pose an existential threat to the Pakistani concept. Well, I think they're right. The military is right to worry that in the long run, what India wants is a demilitarized and denuclearized Pakistan. But from India's perspective, it's a complete misreading of where India is these days, right? So they're they're like, Pakistan's in the rearview mirror. <laughs> India's on the road to global power, right? right. And Pakistan's still... They, they have bigger things in India to worry about than Pakistan, Yes, in other yes. words. So, so every so often, I... I, I I find myself being somewhat sympathetic to the Pakistani predicament. On the other hand, uh, they have a double standard when it comes to the support of terrorism. If it's terrorism directed at Pakistan, it's terrorism. If it's directed outwardly, it's directed at uh, India, for instance, it's liberation, resistance, it's whatever. Um, and, and so – and so periodically I say to myself, maybe the ISI, the Pakistani uh, intelligence agency about which you spend so much time uh, writing, um, uh, maybe they're somewhat justified. On the other hand, then I see Donald Trump come in and say, you know what, let's stop the farce. Um, that Pakistan is our ally. Just a day after warning Pakistan to do more against terrorism or risk losing aid, the Trump White House now plans to cut off security assistance to Islamabad. On Tuesday, the U.S. accused Pakistan of playing a double game on fighting terrorism and said it would hold back $255 million of aid. They work with us at times, and they also harbor the terrorists that attack our troops in Afghanistan. That game is not acceptable to this administration. And I'm also sympathetic to that. That's unusual for a couple of reasons. I'm not generally sympathetic to the foreign policy of Donald Trump or Donald Trump. But there's a certain um, logic to the – and even honesty 
to the the new Trump position. And by the way, we're recording this uh, a couple of weeks before this is right. going to air. So the Trump position could change seven times <laughs> between between this conversation and when it you hear catch. it. Yeah. But um, go to the Trump decision and and answer the question, is that just an honest rendering of reality? Well, it's. I mean, it's hard to argue with uh, what one of his spokespeople said. You know, the status quo is not, not doing a great, not going very well. Right now, the, the difficulty with the leverage the Trump administration is trying to exercise by withholding this aid, it's significant. We'll see if it's coercive. I don't see the Pakistanis changing their behavior as a result of the loss of this aid. But part of the reason that I am skeptical is that the support that China provides Pakistan is... 10 times, 12 times more significant in dollar terms, in strategic terms, and that during the Obama administration, there was a serious conversation between the United States and Pakistan in which that Pakistan welcomed about going back to the days in the Cold War when Pakistan had equally deep alliances with China and the United States. In fact, it was Pakistan that brokered Nixon's opening to China. Kissinger and stuff, needed Kissinger, Pakistan. Yeah. And, yeah. and so the Pakistanis have been there before. They they prefer that position to being all in with one superpower. And there was a negotiation, but the Afghan war blew it apart. It all collapsed. And after that, around 2012, the Pakistanis made a decision, okay, that's it. We're not doing that again, and we're all in with China. If you go into the general's, uh, the army house where the chief of army staff uh, works and receives visitors, and if you look around the room, there's all these like decorations in the room. They're all Chinese. There's like Chinese vases, Chinese you know, precious things. There's not a single American gift or European gift. That, that, is, that is interesting. <laughs> the you go to this China question. There, there, one of the things I understood Obama and others to be resentful of was the fact that the U.S. was spending lives and treasure to stabilize Afghanistan, um, and in so doing, securing China's. Uh, mining interests, right. China's uh, commercial interests. And obviously, no one wants to be a sucker. And I think Obama felt a little bit like a sucker. The broad question out of that is, how important is it to us that Afghanistan become a, a stable place? It's as much of a question as, can it become stable without Pakistan on our side? So it, the, the stability... Um, of Afghanistan will certainly affect the stability of all of its neighbors. That includes China, Pakistan, Iran. None of those are close friends of ours, uh, Russia, Central Asian states. But we want a stable region, so we have an interest in that. But why are we still there? Yeah. Probably not about Afghan stability. It's about international terrorism. It's about the Islamic State, which has popped up uh, in eastern Afghanistan and, and in, Pakistan, and in Pakistan as well. The U.S. military has dropped one of the world's largest non-nuclear bombs on an Islamic State hideout in Afghanistan. The strike was targeted on a series of caves used by the militant group. Pentagon sources say ISIS fighters used tunnel complexes in Afghanistan district to move around without detection. There's a platform there, um, a counterterrorism platform in the, you know, Bagram and, and kind of central Afghan bases that can't be replicated anywhere else. So that's the argument. When I was in Kabul to get the epilogue for the book in 2016, I met with this, you know, the U.S. senior military command. They said, look, the way you have to think about this is think of Nigeria, think of Mexico, think of Colombia, 
these are 30-year unstable countries. Yeah, we can hold the capital together. We can hold some major cities. The guerrilla war will ebb and flow. But ultimately, what the international system is doing is investing in the long-term stability of the states so that the states don't collapse, even when the states are as bad as they are in, say, Nigeria or today in Afghanistan, where riddled with factionalism. So the, it's you talk about moving the goalposts. What you're just saying is, our mission is to stay here long enough and to spend all this money to prevent the state from collapsing into another round of civil war, which, by the way, Afghanistan always feels like it's, you know, a couple of uh, matches away from If that. Afghanistan collapsed into civil war, would that hurt China? It would hurt China badly. And so part of the missed opportunity, I think, in the Trump administration's approach to this, and it was true in the second term of the Obama administration as well, where the president was just so exhausted, he had so many other things to do is that the only model in history that has helped to stabilize Afghanistan is, is regional diplomacy, very active regional diplomacy. It doesn't have to be led by the United States necessarily. It's been led in the past in some cases by the UN. But in the big picture, everybody uh, has an interest in preventing Afghanistan's return to the kind of you know fratricidal, border-spilling, extremist, you know, infused civil conflict that we had leading up to 9-11. Right. Go to this question about international terrorism, because this is the question that actually matters to the average American. Uh, ISIS is on the rise in Pakistan. Um, it has a foothold in Afghanistan. How little do we have to do in this theater in order to prevent another 9-11? So yeah, this I mean, is not. It's not even Afghanistan good. I think in the in the Obama period, it was called Afghanistan good enough. Right. Just like let's stop with the dreams. Right. And just just protect ourselves. Yep, that's right. That was the that was where they ended up after the illusions kind of collapsed. But we haven't seen people traveling from the Islamic State territories of eastern Afghanistan to Paris or Rome or or New York, but. The argument would be that if you just let it fester long enough, it's very easy to imagine that 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 uh, kind of pattern of, of cross-border travel would recur. So um, that's the reason that um, the military has persuaded both the Obama administration and uh, now the Trump administration to hang in at this level of 10 to 15,000 um, forces. You know, if you imagine that that was part of a 360 degree effort to solve the Afghan war through political negotiations to stabilize the region by engaging all the governments that have an interest in trying to prevent cross-border Islamic State growth, then it, it might be more persuasive. The key government is Pakistan's. My question to you is this, and actually you quote, a fascinating quote in, in the book from Hussein Akani, former Pakistani ambassador to the U.S., who very pro-American, but but acknowledges a certain unfortunate truth about American diplomacy or American uh, uh, presence in the region. He said, you're, "You're Americans are not very good at being friends. You're good at buying things, and you're good at bullying." I think this was in the yeah. in the aftermath of yeah, the, the Raymond Davis, Raymond business, Davis yeah, which yeah. was an absurd yeah. um, uh, moment, obviously, uh, in which what well, describe the Raymond Davis episode for people who might not remember. So he was a CIA contractor in Lahore, Pakistan, who 
was scouting a route for his kind of street work, and he saw that he was being followed by two guys on motorcycles with guns, and he stopped his car, got out, shot him dead in the street. Outrage in Pakistan this morning over the release of CIA contractor Raymond Davis. And he was arrested by the Pakistanis in a big hullabaloo ensued about whether he should be released. The U.S. paid more than $2 million for his release, and this is not sitting well with some of the people of Pakistan. All this was happening while the stakeout of the bin Laden hideout at Abbottabad was was known to a very small number of people in the Obama administration. So it was triple complicated. But anyway, we kept lying to the ISI and to the Pakistanis about whether Raymond Davis was really CIA. Oh, this was something like a, a Tom Clancy thriller over the last couple of months. Ray Davis was not only a U.S. employee, a contractor working for, uh, not for the embassy, but from for the office in Lahore, but he was carrying a gun, later turned out to be working for the CIA, many in Pakistan calling for him to be hanged. And that's what prompted Hussein Akani, who was the Pakistani ambassador to Washington, to say, you guys are terrible friends. Like, yeah. I am your very best friend. I am the most pro-American Pakistani ambassador you're ever going to have. And you can't just look me across the table and tell me the truth. Why? And so, right. you know. So, so go go to this. That if Let's say you're advising Donald Trump. Uh, and it's it would be an unusual situation in which the dean of the Columbia Journalism School be an unusual situation. would be advising <laughs> the president on on Afghanistan policy. But let's just make believe. Uh, how do you bring Pakistan into the fold in a way that's useful for American interests? We have to talk to them, and you have to try to broaden the conversation beyond the interests of the Pakistan Army to include those of China and Russia and Iran and. Really, that's the project. You know, the Chinese uh, and the Russians and the Iranians are all talking amongst themselves. There are kind of a, there is a basis for this conversation. And you can leave India in or out depending on, you know, kind of how sensitive Pakistan is about it. But I, you know, I, I go, to go back to your thing about you guys are terrible friends. At one point when I was researching what became this book, I went to some track two meeting in China with the Chinese about Pakistan and Afghanistan. So we met with all of the, like, their top foreign policy people. And we started off the meeting. And the first thing they said, um, no doubt reading Pakistani talking points, was, you people are terrible friends. <laughs> You're horrible <laughs> friends. And I said, well, but you guys don't have a lot of friends. We have a lot of allies. You, you don't really, you know, and they said, actually, Pakistan is our only friend in the world. And it's really a friendship. And we said, really? But what about, like, I don't know. Zimbabwe, North Korea, they said, well, no, those are comrades. And they're not friends. <laughs> but I mean, I, it's a, it just, it was all very funny and in a light tone. But the, the basic idea was that for them, this relationship is really strategic. I mean, it really matters. First, it's on their border. Second, if Islamic terrorism starts spilling into Western China in some significant way because Afghanistan falls apart, it'll really matter to them. And third, they don't have a lot of allies, and this is a really deep relationship. So the opportunity to talk to China about fixing this or stabilizing it or getting it to the best possible condition is obviously there. The problem is that our relationship with China is, you know, this is not high on the priority list. We've got all these other things to do. We're fighting about trade. We've got the South China Seas and so forth. So. Um, I have to, before we go, I have to ask you a couple of uh, questions about journalism, given you're the dean of journalism. Yes. So we're in a weird moment. In journalism, uh, yeah, I've the, noticed. Uh, uh, the president of the United States doesn't like journalists very much and expresses that. What is your biggest worry right now? 
Uh, well, I think on the social media platforms pollution side, uh, things are probably going to get worse before they get better. And um, that's not good for all of us who work hard in the trenches to try to get things right and, and who are working from a kind of the tradition of fact-based reporting. The loss of control that publishers face over their own distribution and the fact that the platforms where they're distributing their important hard-won facts are so polluted and so opaque and that, they, that they're essentially monopolies uh, in the case of uh, Facebook and YouTube. Do you have any hope that Zuckerberg understands the problem? I think he's, he's a smart guy. I think he uh, has a decisive view that Facebook must be a neutral platform and that any kind of taking of editorial responsibility of the sort that we in the journalism side would say is necessary is 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 bad for business but it's it's not sustainable for Facebook's position right. um, so I you know I get that but I don't think the status quo is sustainable either um, the other thing I worry about is the collapse of local journalism um, away from the two coasts because if you map the news deserts that are growing up in this country I mean there are big swaths of the country that have lost local reporting. So that has consequences for the health of our democracy and our public square. And no longer are people in mid-sized towns and suburbs and, and small communities reading journalism by someone who has their kids enrolled in school, who's you know in a place of worship on the weekend, who is part of the community. And so it exacerbates the gulf between the big national institutions and the and the heart of the country that is trying to figure out what to believe. And I think um, we've got to rebuild local journalism. You know, I don't have a What magic. can you do about it at Columbia? You know, I think about it the way if I, if we, if I were the dean of a public health school, I would see this problem of local journalism as an epidemic that we should just be trying to do anything we can to mm. intervene with. Part of it is just to, to make clear how grave this is, and it's not going to get better anytime soon. We have to have a renewal of local journalism. We have to find kits that we can deliver into communities. There's a lot of motivated people. It's just that the old business model is, you know, is ill. I think newspapers in many places will stabilize and they will make the digital transition. They'll be smaller. They'll be more of a part of a more diverse ecosystem than they were. But we've got to figure out how to support the renewal of local journalism, even by people like, you know, me who 10 years from now, when I retire and I go to live somewhere, I'm still going to want to be a journalist. So if I could if I could work in a community that way, there are a lot of people out there like that, but they just don't have the means to do it. Steve Call, small town publisher. That's where I'm going to end up. You come visit me. Uh, we'll, uh, no, it'll be fun. It's a romantic idea. Yes. Wait till you start trying to sell ads. <laughs> it's very romantic. Uh, Steve, thank you very much for, for joining us on the Atlantic interview. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Jeffrey. The Atlantic Interview is produced by Diana Douglas and Kevin Townsend with production help from Abdullah Fayyad and Kim Lau. If you like this podcast, subscribe and rate us. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. See you next week.